This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. With its sleek, aggressive design, improved powertrain for better performance and fuel efficiency, plus advanced tech features the whole family will love, there's more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Visit toyota.com for details. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 10th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Sarah Richardson joins Alexa Billow to talk about a global project to build yeast chromosomes from scratch. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on using photos to predict floods. Traditional flood predictions have been based on monitoring storms and data from electronic sensors. But sensors aren't everywhere. You know what is everywhere? Cell phones. That's right. (laughs) So, Dave, people taking pictures of rivers and streams, what are some examples of this kind of behavior being useful for monitoring weather? Well, you can imagine somebody takes a picture of rising floodwaters and says, tags it, especially on a a photo sharing app like Flickr with – rising flood water or the water's coming or the water's rising or, you know, we're about to be flooded or something like that. And so there's this wealth of information out there, tons of pictures about water, potential floods tagged with terms that might be useful like flood, but also tagged with location data as well. So you know exactly where this incident might be developing. And scientists have actually used this in the past with Hurricane Sandy uh, and Flickr photos where researchers noticed a strong correlation between the change in atmospheric pressure during the storm and images uploaded to Flickr that were marked with tags that were related to the storm. This new study is looking to predict rather than look at the past. And again, using Flickr, how did the researchers in this case harness the photo service to catch uh, imminent flooding? Well, right. So in this case, they wanted to see, well, can we use Flickr not just to monitor a storm in progress or a flood in progress, but actually can it be predictive? And what they did was they turned to neural networks. And this is sort of a computer model that can learn to spot patterns in large sets of data. And they had a really large set of data. They had images and videos that were uploaded to Flickr during a 10-year period that were tagged with general water-related words like a river and water and that were matched to known flood events. They want to see, can the computer match all these things up and use them to 
sort of retroactively predict flooding. And they found that it actually could. And is this going to be better than the current methods like paying attention to the weather and uh, monitoring with electronic sensors? Not quite. So <laughs> it's it's better in the sense that it's not definitely not more accurate and it doesn't provide a lot of really critical information like how high the water's rising, how much rain has fallen. But what it does provide that current methods don't is this really hyper-local approach because you can have sensors and you can have satellites, but they're not necessarily going to be able to get into the nitty-gritty of a specific maybe street in a specific community that may not have sensors. And therefore, if you've got a lot of people around with cell phones, you may be able to get data in some of these places where we don't otherwise have data. Okay, my one concern with this, well, I have a few, but one is people could then trick the system and just post a bunch of uh, pictures and tag them as flooding, and then the system would think that there was a flood when there wasn't. But why would people do that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that does take us to our next story, which is also about hacking. For this one, you know, I can't keep up with all of the hacking that is going on and the data releases uh, these days. Did you know that millions of U.S. federal employees had their personnel files hacked? Did you know who did it? I didn't. I didn't know that. It turns out that calling out the perpetrators of these types of cyber attacks, by the way, it was China, um, (laughs) turns out that calling out the perpetrators of these cyber attacks may not always be the best political move. And to test this out, researchers used game theory. Can you walk us through how they would set this up, Dave? Well, yeah, they were basically trying to figure out, you know, can we run these simulations where, you know, not only do we know that A is attacking B, but that A and B maybe have different vulnerabilities. So it may make sense in some cases for B to blame A for the attack, for B not to blame A for the attack. And what game theory does is it allows this modeling of these types of competition among people, organizations, or governments, so in this case it's probably governments, to sort of figure out which strategy makes the most sense. What's new here is that they added in not just two adversaries trying to steal data and then conceal that they did that, but the political strengths and weaknesses of the players. And with that information incorporated, what did they figure out about um, reporting on cyber attacks? Well, they found out that in cases where, at least the model suggests, that in cases where the attackers domestic and international political standing won't take much of a hit from being blamed, it actually makes sense for the victim to pretend the attack didn't happen or at least not to cast blame. Because in some cases, it can actually make the victim look weak. It can make the victim look like maybe they don't have good defenses. Also, if they don't know who to blame and they're saying, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, well, it also makes the victim look weak because it suggests the victim doesn't have the capability to know who attacked them. Also, by blaming someone and by admitting you got attacked, it sort of reveals something about your intelligence capabilities, your defensive capabilities. And do you really want to give that away if blaming the attacker is really not going to have much of an impact? What are some real-world examples of where maybe no one wanted to blame anyone else in a, in a case of a cyber attack? Well, there was a case in 2009 and 2010 where Iran was attacked by the so-called Stuxnet computer virus, which uh, attacked its nuclear facility. And the government didn't blame the United States and Israel, who were believed to be behind it or alleged to be behind it, uh, because they recognized, well, ostensibly they recognized that the two countries would be able to brush off 
any recriminations, and it would just make Iran look weak in the long run. Hmm. Well, what can government officials do with this? I mean, we do know the identity of most of these attackers through the press. Well, at the very least, you know, this could help policy planners figure out where to put their resources. Does it make more sense to cast blame, to focus and put resources into recriminations, or does it make more sense to put those resources into, say, just beefing up security instead? Last up, we have one of my favorite kinds of stories, a debunking. We know you love a good debunking, Sarah. (laughs) The hunt for human pheromones has a long record in science. Lots of dirty T-shirt smelling studies (laughs) have reported to show the effects of these chemicals on human brains or their behavior. Now a new study has come out that attempts to shut down speculation about two human pheromone candidates. What are they, Dave? Well, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce the full name, but the shortened versions are A-N-D and E-S-T. And these are supposed pheromones. Ever since about the 90s, they've sort of come to prominence for being potential human pheromones. Uh, A-N-D is found in male sweat and semen. E-S-T is found in women's urine. When subjects in the study we're going to talk about now got a whiff of these chemicals, what were they asked to do? Well, they were asked to stare at a couple of things. First, very gender neutral faces. So the kind of face you would look at and you really couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. And the idea is if you're given a pheromone, you're going, if you're a guy, a heterosexual guy, you're going to think maybe that face resembles more of a woman's face and vice versa. Um, But they also looked at images of the opposite sex. Um, Again, these were heterosexual subjects and were asked to rate how attractive they thought they were. And again, the idea would be that if you're given pheromones, you're going to think these faces are more attractive. And so running through all those images and all these smells, what did the researchers find? They found no effect. Okay, so there we go. But this is a pretty contentious area of research. What are some of the objections to this study and its results? Well, one of the experts felt like there weren't enough trials. He also took issue with this idea that actually part of the methodology of the trial was to take cotton balls that were soaked in these pheromones and tape them to people's faces. And he was concerned that maybe the tape was a confounding factor. Maybe the tape had its own smell. What's really interesting with these types of studies is even the people behind it don't say like, case closed, there's no human pheromones. They're basically just saying these two supposed pheromones probably aren't pheromones, but we still think there's pheromones out there. And maybe we just need to do a better job of looking for them. So I don't feel like this is a thorough debunking. Well, some would say it's a thorough debunking of A-N-D and E-S-T, but others would say, no, you know, the study's not powerful enough to tell us whether even A-N-D and E-S-T are not pheromones. All right. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, sir, we've got a story about what Neanderthal teeth can tell us about their diet. Also, a look back at some of the earliest star formation in the universe. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the impact of U.S. President Trump's most recent immigration order and what impact that will have on science or might have on science. Also, a story about the upcoming March for Science slated for 22nd April, who's participating, who's not, and who's still on the fence. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. 
Incredible home cooking has never been more attainable thanks to Blue Apron. Because for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. No more overspending at restaurants or high-end grocery stores. With Blue Apron, you can prepare delicious, memorable meals yourself in under 40 minutes. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of ingredients required, they're reducing food waste. Some of the meals available in March include salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli, pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple, vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips, and spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage and rice. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Synthetic genomics is an emerging science. First, it was the genome of a tiny bacterium. Now researchers are building the entire genome of a far more complex species. In Science This Week, they present Brewer's Yeast 2.0. It's a leaner, meaner, slimmed-down version of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and it's built from the bottom up. Sarah Richardson and colleagues spearheaded the design of this new yeast genome. I'm Alexa Billo. Sarah, thanks for being here today. Thanks. First, can you put this work in context for us? Why would we want to build a genome from scratch? What was your role? Well, there's an old engineering rationale for this, really. If you know how a radio works, you should be able to build radio from scratch. Cells aren't radios, of course, but there are some hypotheses about genomes that are hard to test without large-scale experiments like this. If some of the theories prove correct, we have a chance to breed an organism that is even more receptive to our suggestions than the yeast we started with. That would mean a lot to the bioengineers that are building chemical synthesis platforms, everything from the fermentation of alcohol, like brewing beer, to making vegan milk and spider silk in yeast instead of in cows or in spiders. There's also the fact that it's a big proof of principle. It's a feat of technological and international organization to get this far. It's in the grandest style of science cooperation. A lot of people worked together for a really long time to make this happen. And what I did myself was to write the computer algorithms that model the genome content and establish an interface for that model that allows others to edit the genome so that they don't have to program in order to interface with the genome the way I do. That piece of the work is called BioStudio. And as you touched on, this work is the product of a vast consortium. And there are significant contributions along the way from students, some of whom were undergrads. How did that work? What did they do? We had a lot of great undergrads. That was a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole project is how much education and outreach we were able to do to traditionally a tier of scientists that don't get to make big contributions to this kind of work. Current technology doesn't let us both reliably and inexpensively synthesize DNA in long, continuous pieces. Instead, we make short pieces and stitch them together into bigger pieces. Those slightly bigger pieces are again joined and then quality tested before being passed up to more higher order assembly. So the undergraduates who joined our Build a Genome class for this project typically came in with ownership over a stretch of the yeast genome. And their job was to assemble that piece. 
So in the process, we got to teach them all kinds of microbiological and molecular biological techniques. They got lectures from all of the collaborating faculty. Some of them even contributed software and algorithms to the underlying code infrastructure. At the end of the semester, their output was an assembled piece of DNA. They can point to a piece in the genome and say, I built that. And how big are these pieces? How big are yeast chromosomes? The yeast genome has about 12 million bases spread across 16 chromosomes. They range in size from 200,000 bases about to 1 million bases. So that's 6,000 genes in 12 million bases. But the human genome is 3 billion bases, 20,000 genes on 24 chromosomes. The smallest human chromosome is still big enough to hold the entire yeast genome four times over. So the yeast genome's big, but it's not the biggest thing we know about. And it's hard to get that much DNA hooked up and running live. So we're still a very, very long way from doing anything like this for a human or even a mouse. And you did slim the genome down slightly. You shrank the yeast genome by about 8%. You wanted to retain a phenotype that would act and behave more or less normally without getting sick. What is safe to toss in those circumstances? How much stuff can you lose before things start to go wrong? We're hoping to find that out, that if the yeast that is growing to make beer has a certain set of nutritional requirements and a certain set of outputs we're asking it for, but if you ask a yeast to do something different, the strengths it brings to beer might not be the best strengths to bring to, say, milk making. So we would like to see which things are necessary for tasks we've known it to use and which things might be necessary for new tasks we would like it to take on. So part of that is that there's no single right answer about what stuff you can lose and how much you can lose before things go sideways because it depends on what conditions the yeast are living in. We consider this a platform for testing that, that we can now much more quickly and more effectively check to see how we can engineer yeast to survive in a variety of production environments. One of the things we wanted to test, it's very difficult to test without doing this way, is to try and dump a lot of the introns. Those are intervening sequences in genes, the pieces of genes that don't code for proteins. We thought that maybe we could move some of those around. We thought we could change some of the coding sequence just a little bit to free up some of the tRNAs. And we thought we could move tRNAs around to remove them from chromosomes and to sideline them to something else. There's a good reason for that. We took the tRNA genes out because they are hotspots for genome instability. Even in the regular yeast that we make beer and bread with, tRNAs are a spot where the genomes tend to break. What that represents to a bioengineer is some instability where you've asked yeast to do something and then randomly it gets broken because a tRNA gene got mutated. So what we'd like to do instead is to sort of sideline that mutation rate so that it happens away from the genes that we're bioengineering and see if that doesn't improve the stability of bioengineered strains. Does that help you make it smaller or does that just make everything a little more stable? There are duplications of tRNAs, so it does help us make it a little bit smaller, although that's not the biggest bit of shrinkage. Our hypothesis is that this will help us make bioengineered strains of yeast more stable. What does the future hold for this kind of research? 
what can you do with yeast built from the bottom up that you can't do with any old strain of yeast? And what other things would you want to be able to make? I think one of the coolest things we'll be able to do with this yeast is to really test hypotheses about genome structure. We watch genomes evolve and we see the end bit of genome evolution. You know, the genome that we see today is a genome that has been worked on by nature or by humans for many thousands of years. And we have questions about why is it that way? Why is it this way and no other way? And when you get a genome that you've built from scratch that you've added certain features to that allow you to test certain hypotheses, you can really start to check to see what's going on with that genome in a way you couldn't do in other ways. I'm very excited to watch people take it and and go test how genomes work in a way that just wasn't possible before. But I think there's a lot of really great bioproduction and biomanufacturing that we might make slightly easier in yeast going forward if we have even better control over how the yeast works and even better understanding of why it works that way. Sarah, thanks so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Sarah Richardson and colleagues published just one of a package of papers about a synthetic yeast genome this week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aans.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.